Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The Nielsen Show. And today we are going to talk about accountability, personal accountability, and just accountability in our own government, and what we can do to help bring that to a forefront. Because without accountability, you get what we see today, which is unaccountability. So we're going to dig into that here in just a moment. Alright, so to start this episode off, um, accountability, we're going to have to take a little a little leap backwards here. Uh, some of this stuff is going to be stuff that uh, has come up from the past that's affecting how we're living today in the, the now. Um, and some of that's going to be uh, the election integrity. Uh, this year is an election year, midterms. It's going to be the House and the Senate races, you know, people that are up for election midterm. And uh, there's still a lot of questions that need to be answered and about the uh, 2020 election and kind of what happened there. So to start this off, I'm going to have to go back to the 2020 election stuff. And part of that's going to be uh, there's a guy named Dinesh D'Souza, and he uh, has got a movie coming out, I think, this week. It's called 2,000 Mules. Um, I'm not sure where to get it exactly right now. Uh, I know he's releasing it, I think, on his um, Locals. I think it's a Locals account. I don't even know what Locals is, to tell you the truth. But uh, I just want to go to... This way you can't trust Wikipedia a ton because <laughs> people like D'Souza or anybody basically on the right because, let's face it, it's it's like an open source platform where people can go in and write crap in there, I guess. I don't, I don't know how it all works exactly. But just to give you a rundown of what Wikipedia says about him, uh, his description is Dinesh Joseph D'Souza gives his birth date, is an Indian-American right-wing political commentator, provocateur, author, filmmaker, and, this is the key one, conspiracy theorist. Now, they have to, uh, okay, and it goes on, hold on, I'll finish this for you. D'Souza has written over a dozen books, several of them New York Times bestsellers, which is kind of surprising they even put that on there. Because I think I would have thought they would have just ended it with conspiracy theorist, <laughs> other than they're trying to lead into, oh, look, he's written all these books that are all conspiracy theories. And the funny thing that comes from the left and people trying to destroy anybody's, I don't, I don't even know if you call it news or just whatever on the right, they have to destroy their narratives. <laughs> and it's really quite a. I mean, it's it's an open thing if you actually are looking at it, that this is kind of what they do. So, he's, like I say, he's got this movie called 2,000 Mules coming out, and I'm just going to play uh, the audio, I guess, from the trailer. to kind of explain it a little bit better here. Here we go. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive 
voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. Let me say it again. The 2020 election was the most secure election in American history. Let me begin by asking a very simple question. Do we know the truth about what really happened in the 2020 election? I think millions of Americans know something went wrong and they have little pieces and no one's really put it together. I'm agnostic on this question and I, I am awaiting more information. If I believed the president were a Nazi, I might steal an election. Old accusations require bold evidence and they haven't seen it. We have been working on something big. Show me the money. Can we meet? I've been working with Greg Phillips. He has a deep background in election intelligence. Through the Vote has the largest store of election intelligence for the 2020 elections in the world. No one has more data than we do. We identified in Atlanta 242 mules that went to an average of 24 drop boxes. But Philadelphia alone, we've identified more than 1,100 mules. What is a mule? Person picking up ballots and running them to the drop boxes. This is not grandma out walking her dog. Bad backgrounds, bad reputation. They are interested in one thing, that's money. And in no shape, in no way, in no time is that legal. This is organized crime. Do you have video evidence? Four million minutes of surveillance video around the country. What you're about to see is disturbing. So this is uh, 1 o'clock in the morning. Don't we all vote at 1 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> one night, this person, this mule, went across six counties to 27 different drop boxes. I call it the Mexican mafia, seriously, because uh, they, they work like that. This is jaw-dropping. What you showed is frightening. It's just sickening to me. Now we come to the most important question of all. Was the magnitude of vote trafficking enough to tip the balance in the 2020 presidential election? It's not a leap to say this would have made a difference. They have ruined Election Day in the United States of America. That's provable. And that's enough for me to fight the left with every fiber in my body. Without free and fair elections, we are not a democracy. We are a criminal cartel masquerading as a democracy. So if you actually go to uh, True the Vote, that's where you can actually watch uh, the trailer for it. And then it has an article pretty much about it as well. Um, so with that, now this is all going to kind of tie into a few different things. Um, so also another thing that kind of, I think, had a, a bigger impact than what anybody will really admit to is the suppression of the New York Post article about the Hunter Biden laptop right before the election. Now, certain media people were asked about that, and they just simply said it wasn't in an, in an interesting story. But had that came out, and they actually were doing news, I think 
Trump would have been in office, regardless of all the basically nonsense, you know. And the thing is, too, if you're paying, not watching the, the corporate media because you're not going to get the truth there, you're going to get little pieces of the truth. You're not going to get the whole truth. So you can't really rely on them, I don't think, anymore. I mean, you've kind of seen what's happened. CNN is a prime example. So what has changed with CNN is they actually used to report the news. They slowly just, when Trump was running, I think it's kind of when they really went off the rails and went into uh, opinion, like they had to give their opinion on everything, you know, like the narratives. Trump's a Nazi. Anybody that, you know, look at all these right-wingers following him. They, they must be white supremacists. You know, all the, all the just the nonsense. But also with CNN doing that, the people started figuring out that, all right, we're tired of listening to your garbage. It's like it's not news. It's your anchors giving their opinions on what they feel about this or that. You're not reporting the news. So, I mean, they've their ratings dropped so bad that for some reason they decided to uh, invest $300 million in a CNN Plus paid platform <laughs> that lasted about a month. And they only had like a hundred and something thousand subscribers worldwide with at any time, like close to 10,000 at a time watching it. And it went under. They shut it down. <coughs> uh, excuse me. Hopefully I don't start that already. So. People are slowly waking up, I think, to the BS on these corporate medias. I mean, and some of them have finally started to course correct, I guess, a little bit to where they're actually reporting news, but then you still have opinionators that are in between or whatever, you know, giving their opinions on this and that. So <clears throat> where I'm getting at with that is going into Elon Musk buying up Twitter and the freak out that's going on from the people on the left that he's going to or has openly stated that he wants it to be a free speech platform. Now, if that was the case, you know, these people on the left, you know, we need free speech, blah, blah, blah. You know, they they claim that, and that's why they have to uh, get rid of these people on the right that are, you know, spewing disinformation, according to them. When, if you're going to get to the truth, you got to have discourse between people. You can't get in your little bubbles and think you're going to be able to ever get anywhere with anything. Because you're all just parroting the same thing. And you see it all the time with the news media. Something comes out, Hunter Biden laptops, misinformation. All the corporate media, all the talking heads on there were all saying the same thing. I mean, it's it's... The people that put together the clips, if you ever see any of the clips of all these different news, supposedly air quotes, news organizations, um, they're all say the almost exact thing. They might change a word or two here and there, but it's essentially the same exact thing. It's like, do they send out like a, a cor corporate wide media, like text message? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but it's like how. Is it possible that all these people 
from all these different media organizations are all saying the same thing. And then, of course, you've usually got Fox on the other side of the aisle that's pointing stuff like that out. But, you know, then they've got to be the they've got to be the right wing conspiracy theorists. <laughs> uh, and, but the bad thing about all this is, is that you had intelligence officials. Also from the government. Saying that this laptop was. Russian disinformation. Now that is the probably the most disturbing part about all of this is that you have high up government officials in the CIA, FBI, you name it, all saying that as well. Uh, supposedly the FBI had the laptop, didn't do anything with it. Give, I, I don't know. It sounds like this thing's just kind of made its way around through everybody and nobody wanting to do anything with it. Now, supposedly the Republicans, whoever in the Republican Party has it and they're digging through it. So I don't know really what the truth is there. <laughs> but this election stuff, and I, I could say that they've said it time and time again, never let a crisis go to waste. So here comes COVID and, you know, all the Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, all them. Oh, we got to We got to do melon ballots. Everybody has the right to vote. Um, so states, because it's up to the states to do their own elections, even though we've seen uh, Nancy Pelosi trying to push that for the people act that would federalize elections. And uh, you started seeing all the weird things going on. Now, I'm not going to claim one way or the other what really happened because I haven't, you know, we haven't gotten all the information. We heard all the all the accusations from the Trump team. and all, Oh, the election was stolen. It, you know, there's all this cheating going on. <clears throat> and it's it's a long process uh, that I think you, you will be able to see in this 2000 mules thing because of the way the, the article uh, kind of goes with it says that. Uh, uh well anyways do you remember the the I'll get to the article on it but do you remember the interview that Trump had with Leslie Stahl where he said that you know there was a laptop and none of you guys wanted to cover it and said like, oh it can't be verified well it goes back to the point of you can't verify anything if you're not looking for the information and the, the spying on the Trump team oh come on you know this is this is 60 minutes we can't be saying stuff like that. You know, we're a trusted news organization. <laughs> well, man, you know what? A lot of them were once upon a time <laughs> before they realized, you know, they could they could stir up the hate and get ratings. <laughs> and I think a lot of that's kind of dying off. You've still got these little factions. I mean, like I say, if you went to Libs of TikTok and watched that, those are the people that we are essentially combating against because they're the ones in these organizations. Like I say, as soon as they heard uh, <clears throat> Elon Musk was taking over Twitter and he wanted free speech on the platform, they all freaked out because they don't want free speech. They want their speech. And that's not healthy for a healthy country. Which right now this this country's sick. It has an illness. 
Uh, and a lot of it is, I think, mental illness, unfortunately. And it seems to be spreading in, in a in a generation of we have the the most amount of information through the internet, but we just have lazy people that don't want to research anything and try and find out the truth. It's easier to be oh I can follow this uh, group over here and they're telling me what I want to hear and what I should be doing and what how I should think. And that is a big problem, I think, to get our country back to where it needs to be as a healthy country. So this, uh, like I said, this 2,000 Mules by Dinesh D'Souza, I, I encourage anybody to go find out where to be able to watch that from. I don't know if it's streaming or whatever. I'm sure you probably got to pay for it or whatever. But Dinesh D'Souza even though he's supposedly a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> has put out some pretty good information stuff. It's like, you can go and, you know, double check it. I mean, if you want to go to the left-wing sites, you're obviously going to find, oh, this is all bullcrap, you know, and their opinion about it. Not, oh, well, here's the counterfacts on what what really happened. They don't They don't provide any of that. Just their opinion on why. It's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> um, but at this point, with accountability, Joe Biden has repeatedly, when he was asked, denied having anything to do with Hunter Biden's business dealings. And slowly but surely, trickling out, we're finding out that uh, that's been a lie. And... You know, if anybody's looked at Joe Biden's political history from way back in the day, uh, he's been a liar. He's he's just a liar. And I think certain people that get into those positions of power do corrupt stuff. They lie about it because they get caught. Uh, and you know, people forgive him, I guess, because, I mean, how long did he stay in the Delaware Senate? Long time before he was vice president under Barack Obama. And then, you know, now president, regardless of whether there was cheating or not, he's the president of the United States. Now, you wouldn't have heard that from anybody on the left when Donald Trump won. It was not my president <laughs> and whatever other stupid things they decided to come up with. <laughs> like you can say he's not your president, but um, he's sitting in the White House. So I don't know what uh, you can play mental games all you want, I guess. But we're getting more information coming out. It's trickling out. I mean, uh, it takes for a while for all this stuff to come out. And I don't know. I mean, it seems like there's really no accountability anywhere in our federal government. There's not for any of these FBI uh, individuals that have been under oath testifying in front of Congress found out they were lying about this or that and uh lawyers lawyers doing the same thing lying getting caught nobody's disbarred it's like why why are we even wasting taxpayer money trying to investigate this stuff in congress if nothing happens to these people now us you know us peasants down here in the real world um they're raiding our homes hauling us off to jail and, uh, you know, if you happen to be, I don't know, uh, 
according to them, the January 6th insurrectionist, uh, a few of them people are still sitting in a D.C. jail. So once again, I ask, is our Constitution really even valid anymore when our own federal government can sit there and do that to its own citizens? Uh, I don't think they've read the Constitution, and I don't think they care to understand the Constitution because they're at a point where they've gotten away with stuff for so long, they just feel like they can do whatever they want. And as far as I can see with most things, that seems to be true. I mean, I've done an episode before, you know, who's standing up for us? You know, it's it's a, it's a right and versus left thing these days in politics. But who on the right is really, I mean, have, have you really heard anything about any of the Republicans making a, a fit about this whole January 6th? Riot it wasn't an insurrection. It was a whatever, you know, happened in there. Uh, like I say, I think in the last episode, I was talking about the whole thing with the Governor Whitner, Whitmer thing and the FBI informants and FBI individuals from the FBI in that group creating, creating the problem, antagonizing the problem. Uh, and then, you know, arresting these guys after they set them up and saying, oh, look, we're doing our job. We just stopped this kidnapping. And these people are Trump supporters. That uh, is a serious problem. Uh, I haven't read anywhere of any of these individuals being fired, not even demoted at this point. So it's like, okay, so what, what do laws even really mean if the people enforcing them are getting away with breaking them? No different than with our Congress in general. Insider trading with the, you know, members of Congress. Oh, it's participating in the, the open market. <laughs> well, I wish I had your uh, knowledge of insider trading and could participate in that same open market. Because you people that are creating the laws down the road that will benefit certain companies, invest in those companies before the laws get passed. And make millions of dollars. Now that don't happen out here in the real world. Because if that happens. It's called insider trading. And you go to jail. It's a, a two tier system. It's uh, basically the. Uh, I don't know. I call them the elites. Because they think they are. They think they uh, need to tell us how to think. And what we need to do at any given time. Uh, what I mean. Just with them spending money right now, it's ridiculous. Uh, there's been tens of billions of dollars that have gone to Ukraine. And, you know, whether that's, it's a right or wrong thing to do, I guess that's whatever. I, I just don't see how they just keep having an open checkbook to just keep the president, oh, I want 20 or $30 billion to send to Ukraine for them to... Get rid of that Putin, you know. And like I say, Russia's Russia's been the aggressor in this. I don't, I don't think we should not help them out a little bit. But we're already thirty trillion dollars in debt, and then uh, I'm going to get into that a little bit too. And talking about how we're doing as a nation, you know, 
a high percentage of Americans already lived paycheck to paycheck. Our national GDP just shrunk by 1.3%, I think is what they said. That's not good. Now the White House is going to try and spin it any way they can. Jen Psaki's good at that, or avoid the question altogether when they're asked about it. But I know it's affecting me with uh, fuel prices, and I got to commute to work. And it's starting to hurt pretty bad, paying four and a half dollars a gallon here in Utah on average. Just trying to get back and forth to work to earn enough money to keep getting back to work. <laughs> it's a losing battle right now. So I can't imagine, you know, and I make pretty decent money. But it's affecting the bottom line on you start figuring out, okay, what do we want to spend money on? What do we not want to spend money on right now? So anyways, we're going to get back into this here coming up on our first break. And we'll get right back into it right after this. All right, so we'll start this segment off with a story from the Epic Times. As researcher featured in 2000 Mules documentary explains how local election fraud was grown to national scale. Voter fraud has traditionally been a local affair in the United States where elections are conducted by more than 3,000 counties in a decentralized system that makes mass ballot manipulation nearly impossible. And it very much remains so, maintains Greg Phillips. His investigation into Georgia voter fraud during the state's 2021 U.S. Senate election runoff is featured in Dinesh D'Souza's 2000 Mules documentary to be released this week. While manning to the Votes Voter Fraud hotline during the 2020 election, Phillips said he observed local election fraud grown to scale as part of a ballot harvesting scheme orchestrated by national organizations. Across the country, there are a thousand local insurgencies doing their own things in defiance of state election laws, he said. But what has happened over the past few decades and became evident during the 2020 election is new money and old money, old-fashioned foundations, can leverage fraud already in place at a local level, Phillips said. This is how this thing grows to scale and can influence state and national election results. Phillips, a former director of the Mississippi Department of Human Services and a former deputy commissioner for the Texas Health and Human Services Commission, is the managing partner and majority owner of OPSEC Group LLC based in Birmingham, Alabama. His company conducts a voting role and election results investigations and analysis for True the Vote, a nonprofit based in Houston founded by Catherine Engelbrecht in 2010. For more than a decade, TTV has been training poll watchers, educating voters in election law, and lobbying to enact many of the reforms adopted post-2020. Engelbrecht's TTV and Phillips OPSEC conducted an investigation presented into the documentary by D'Souza, which is set to open in 300 theaters on May 2nd and May 4th. Oh, there you go. That's part of the answer to my question. Uh, The genesis of the investigation, which he and Engelbrecht say 
proves large-scale illegal vote trafficking occurred in the 2020 election was digging into reports after Manning TTV's tip line, Phillips said. We started to see these anomalies, these densities, in precinct after precinct in places like Milwaukee, Detroit, Atlanta, and Arizona's Maricopa County, where voter turnout was extraordinarily high and virtually all ballots were cast for the same candidates, he said. Mistakes happen, but when you have 100% of registered voters voting and all for the same candidates, there is something fishy afoot, Phillips said. He said that people calling the tip lines from across the country reported oddities around ballot drop boxes. A common theme was seeing the same people dropping off ballots. There was a lot of speculation about things related to drop boxes. A lot of video around these drop boxes, Phillips said, but it was difficult to use in trying to prove fraud. Then he had an idea. Geospatial analysis gleaned from cell phone data. 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 I don't know, whatever that word is. <laughs> he said that each cell phone emits a unique identifiable signal or ping. He said all of which are collected and am- amalgamated. Am- amalgamated? Boy, I, I'm really dumb, so bear with me here. Amalgamated by brokers and sold. By collecting cell phone data, you not only know where, but when a phone is at different places, Phillips said. Presuming you know the person who owns that phone, you can learn where does he sleep, where does he work. He was eager to see what analyzing cell phone pings around drop boxes would engender. The phone numbers can be tracked and investigators can go back and bust out a pattern of locations before, during, and after the phone is at the drop box, he said. They then refined a hypothesis that could be tested in Georgia during the January 2021 runoff election for both of the state's U.S. Senate seats. The operation would require the purchase of a petabyte of pings. Petabyte, that was probably, I guess, a lot. Uh, A petabyte equals 1,000 terabytes. Okay, that's a lot. Which Phillips said is a big, big, big thing. Engelbrecht and her team were working on filing freedom of information requests, and she didn't really buy into a lot of the stuff that was out there, he said. But she supported us, backed us all the way. When we needed more data, she went out and raised more money. The data were super expensive. Uh, millions of dollars, Phillips said. We may, be only, we may be the only group left standing when this is all said and done that went out and bought 10 trillion pings. Once they had the data, the question was, who made 25 or more visits to a Dropbox? What that left us with was 242 individuals who met that threshold, Phillips said. TTV also collected 4 to 5 million minutes of video that also show the cell phone owners making ballot drops, he said. Those who did so 25 or more times were labeled mules. The data confirmed exclusively that industrial-scale ballot harvesting was routine in Georgia, especially in the Atlanta area, Phillips said Engelbrecht demanded it be checked and rechecked. She says over and over again, Greg, no matter what, you can't be wrong, he said. We had we had to put it through these quality control checks, create algorithms to pick up anomalies and kick them out. We did not want to include false positives, exclude people who should be included, and include people who should be excluded. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves, Engelbrecht said. It takes time to develop these analyses. When the findings were presented to state officials early 
2021, they didn't get the expected response. In September 2021, Georgia Bureau of Investigation Director Vic Reynolds said that since TTV would not reveal sources cited in its analysis, there was no probable cause to investigate. They got mad at us and sent us a letter saying no probable cause to investigate. You don't need probable cause to investigate, Phillips said. I think the greatest challenge we faced was we really believed we could get our work to a point where it was clear there is a problem that using our data collected by the same technology routinely used by law enforcement would be impetus enough for key officials to say this is something we should look into, Engelbrecht said. On April 25th, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger announced that state would investigate TTV's claims and subpoenaed Engelbrecht and Phillips. One reason for Georgia's revived interest in TTV's 2021 investigation and sources was that similar subsequent geospatial investigations by Phillips had gained traction with officials in Arizona, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Phillips said they found ballot harvesting to be a local cottage industry everywhere they looked. County by county, the grifts are different. The collectors and the collection methods are different, he said. You think, how could this possibly so be so coordinated? It doesn't seem plausible that thousands of people could have been brought in to do all this stuff. This makes combating fraud at the polls a thousand-front war, a whole bunch of mini-insurgencies that provide oh, that provide the infrastructure for national groups to scale up. Phillips said he can't name names right now. We are being advised right now not to make specific allegations until we get further down the road, he said. But he said the group's capitalization on local election fraud networks tend to be state chapters of national advocacy groups and foundations with grant programs that have significant influence in communities. I went to Dinesh and said there's enough material here for a movie, and I'm not sure anyone else will tell the story, Engelbrecht said. It's very difficult in today's environment to find people like Dinesh willing to step up to the line and say, let's take a look at it. We both ended up being a lot more involved in this movie than we thought we would be, Philip said. The next thing we know, we are front and center. But stay tuned, both say Morris to coming. We have two investigations that are more explosive and likely more impactful than this entire mules thing, Philip said. There is something we haven't spoke of publicly because we thought it was going to go in a certain direction, and now that agency is flipping the script, so we are trying to batten down the hatches, Engelbrecht said. When it comes to this stuff, you cannot be wrong. Uh, that's a pretty interesting story if you ask me, but, you know, corporate media is not going to want to cover it because it doesn't fit their narrative. Uh, so, like I say, when all this is said and done, though, is there going to be any accountability to people? I mean, you, you'll probably maybe get some of these mules arrested and charged, maybe. I think that seems like that happens every year. You get, you know, somebody that was arrested and charged with voter fraud. But if it's this massive and they can actually like pinpoint down the people, I mean, if they've got video evidence and uh, ping data to these people off their cell phones, then is there going to be an investigation by our, I don't know, our law enforcement, FBI, are they going to care? Or are they going to say, oh, we'll take a look at it. Oh, we didn't find anything. Is that, I mean, that seems to be how it goes these days. Oh, we, we didn't find anything. We looked into it, but we didn't find anything. Did you really look into it, though? I mean, people are handing you 
uh, their investigative information looks pretty legit, but you guys can't go any farther with it and, you know, go conduct interviews. Uh, I mean, what's, what's really going to come out of this? I don't know. Cause it seems like there's just nobody wants to hold anybody accountable in the higher echelons of our government. And with that, we, we don't have a republic. And with that, uh, and I think in reaction to Elon Musk buying Twitter, we now have the Department of Homeland Security creating what they call a uh, disinformation board. <laughs> <laughs> uh okay so we're supposed to believe you guys <laughs> uh, you're gonna you're gonna tell us what's disinformation even though you've been wrong i don't know how many times but no trust us with the department of homeland security we're we're gonna you know look into all this disinformation uh like the hunter biden laptop it's the disinformation that was there yeah, I don't think so. So from the New York Post, uh, Mayorkas claims new DHS disinformation board will not monitor U.S. citizens. Huh, let's see. I, I think I remember something similar to that uh, that came out from the NSA not collecting our data. Oh, wait, but then Edward Snowden come out and basically verified, no, they were collecting everybody's information <laughs> and, but we're not you know don't don't worry trust this guy trust him so this story goes on homeland security secretary alejandro mayorkas claimed sunday that his department's orwellian disinformation governance board will not monitor u.s citizens and vouched for the immensely dis uh, eminently qualified Agencies are who has been blasted by critics for being too partisan. <laughs> Mayorkas defended Nina Jankowicz amid questions from conservatives over her ability to ferret out disinformation when she doubted the credibility of the Post series of reports in October 2020 about Hunter Biden's laptop, information that has since been confirmed by other newspapers and media outlets. You know, yeah. Their guy got into the office, so, you know, they don't have to protect him anymore on that. Jankowicz was also mocked when a wacky TikTok video surfaced of her singing a rendition of the Mary Poppins tune, Superfragilistic Espialidocious, to address the spread of disinformation. Mayorkas praises Jankowicz on CNN as eminently qualified and a renowned expert in the field of disinformation. Well, if you're the one that's spewing out disinformation, yeah, you're pretty experienced in it. Uh, I don't know about uh, being an, an ex. Well, depends on how you define expert. Because <laughs> pretty much if uh, you're like me, I don't trust any of these so-called experts. Uh, asked by host Brett Baer. Uh, during an appearance on Fox News Sunday about Jankowicz's objectivity, Mayorkas said he had no reservations. Hmm. I don't question her objectivity. There are people in the department who have a diverse range of views, and they're incredibly dedicated to mission. We're not the opinion police, he told Bear. <laughs> no, we're the uh, 
disinformation police. Uh, the DHS secretary was pressed on CNN about whether everyday Americans will end up being surveilled by the disinformation board. Still not clear to me how this governance board will act and what it will do, Bash told Mayorkas. Mayorkas responded, So what it does is it works to ensure that the way in which we address threats, the connectivity between threats and acts of violence are addressed without infringing on free speech, protecting civil rights and civil liberties, the right of privacy. Bash pushed, Will American citizens be monitored? No, he replied. The board does not have any operational authority or capability. Then why do we need them? Can anybody explain that? Why do we need it then? What it will do is gather together best practices in addressing the threat of disinformation from foreign state adversaries from the cartels and disseminate those best practices to the operators that have been executing and addressing this threat for years. But Mayorkas conceded the administration could have done a better job communicating how the board will function, noting that it will examine disinformation from Russia, China, and the cartels that smuggle people and drugs into the U.S. when they are perceived to be a threat to national security. Critics have blasted the board as a way to the federal, for the federal government to curtail free speech. Jankowicz in her oddball turn as Mary Poppins in the February 2021 video saying information laundering is really quite ferocious. It's when a huckster takes some lies and makes them sound precocious by saying them in Congress or a mainstream outlet, so disinformation's origins are slightly less atrocious, she said. Longtime Republican advisor Carl Rove told Fox News, What the heck is going on here? This is an important board. It's job to help deal with misinformation being fed into America by foreign actors, both state and non-state actors, and they put in charge of it a political hack. <laughs> uh, that's the end of the article. <laughs> uh, so, oh, here's here's Nina Jankowicz. Uh, it looks like a Twitter, TikTok, something or the other. Let's let's just click on it and see what it says. Wondering is really quite ferocious. It's when a huckster takes some lies and makes them sound precocious by saying them in Congress or a mainstream outlet. So, disinformation's origins are slightly less atrocious. It's how you hide a little, hide a little lie. It's how you hide a little, hide a little lie. It's how you hide a little, hide a little lie. When Rudy Giuliani shared that intel from Ukraine, or when TikTok influencers say COVID can cause pain, they're laundering disinfo, and we really should take note and not support their lies with our wallet, voice, or vote. Oh, information laundering is really quite ferocious. It's when our huckster takes some lies and makes them sound precocious by saying them in Congress or mainstream outlets. So yes, information's origin seems likely less atrocious. <laughs> Oh boy. That's the lady that's going to be in charge of that. <laughs> what do we got to lose, right? Throw her in there. I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? Oh boy. Okay, well. Oh, well, I clicked on something. That ain't what I wanted. I already heard that from that lady. Uh crazy lady it seems to me i mean she must have really rehearsed that before she recorded that <laughs> uh <clears throat> let's see here so oh, we've gone over that just go over my little check sheet here um so i think when i come back we're gonna take a break here uh we're gonna talk about the food shortages that are 
I think imminently coming and some information on why I think that uh, other things that have happened that probably most people don't even know has happened. So we'll get into that too with that story coming up here in just a moment when we get back. Okay, so you've probably heard me talk in the past about uh, upcoming food shortages. Part of that is supply chain. Um, Like I said, I think the last episode, Shanghai, different places like that, there are tons of ships now on the coast of China waiting to offload products and then get reloaded with products coming out of China to be shipped around the world. Um, What those goods are, I mean, are just the exports that China puts out that, uh, unfortunately, America relies a lot on. So, before I get into the food shortages parts of this, what skills do you have? Because sometimes uh, you're not going to be able to get stuff fixed at least not cheaply, you know, with your car, uh, personal experience, a washer, two years old, um, you start digging into the warranty on the item, and it really doesn't cover much. (laughs) So with my washer, uh, I've always had a curious mind anyways, and I've always tore things apart growing up, trying to figure out how they work. Uh, Sometimes I could put them back together (laughs) and make them work again. And sometimes they just ended up going in the garbage. But in this case, I decided uh, the washer was going out. I was making funny noises. I'm like, all right, let me look into the internet here. Found a parts diagram and decided, I was like, there's really not a whole lot involved in making a washing machine work. <laughs> it's it's amazing, you know, what a, probably a repairman would charge you to come do it. And that's fine if, if you want to. Get a repairman to come. I mean, you're just going to have to deal with the amount of time for them to get there. They're going to charge you, regardless, a diagnosis fee um, to come and look at it, maybe tear a couple things apart, and then decide what needs to be repaired and what doesn't. But I tore it apart, found out the parts that were visibly... Uh, you could see where or different funny things on them. Like, okay, this is what makes sense on what the noise was that I was hearing. I've ordered the parts. I'm still waiting on one because it was on back order. It's supposedly going to be here tomorrow. And then I can get the washing machine put back together. It was. It's like literally three, three parts out of a four or five part system that makes the washing machine turn. Um, really simple to me. I'm not saying that's to everybody, but with the upcoming things that are going to be impacting everybody's daily lives from even car repairs. I mean, if you've always went and had your oil changed at an oil change station, um, you you understand it's not cheap. I mean, even doing it yourself is not cheap, but you're going to save yourself some labor costs if you need to look into ways to cut your budget down and realistically changing your oil is really not that hard you can go buy a 
uh, plastic oil pan that would go under your car once you take the drain the drain plug out, drain it into that. Then you can put it in jugs and take it back to your uh, parts stores. We'll usually recycle the oil for you free of charge. And uh, just knowing how to do that, sim- simple things. You know, possibly rotating your tires, you know, to make them last longer, checking the air pressure in them, simple mechanical things on on it, virtually anything. If you don't know how to do them, you can watch YouTube videos and or, or you know, there's information out there to get some hard skills that will probably, in my opinion, be really useful in the next coming years, not just months, next coming years, or even, in my opinion, a lifetime. Changing your own brakes, I mean, can cost you a few hundred dollars sometimes by taking it to a shop. Um, But once you figure out there's really not much to a brake system and what to look for, uh, you can do, I mean, I can do a brake job on most vehicles in an hour if you've got all the stuff there ready to go the parts the brake pads you can check calipers and different things like that you know make sure they're functioning correctly um you know for me but like i say i've always had a curious mind and i've done this stuff my whole life growing up you know tearing stuff apart figuring out how it works sometimes i screwed stuff up and learned what i did wrong and then the next time i did it, it was like boom done you know quick and easy so just just food for thought learn some learn some other skills uh like i say most of this stuff's really not that hard it seems hard sometimes when you look at it and think it's super complicated but realistically once you tear it apart there's not much to most things so just food for thought so the food shortages supply chain issues um so right now um i I have a subscription to the epic time so i get a lot of my information there because i feel like they're giving us giving me at least the most accurate reliable information they actually have investigative reporters that will go and you know do what the news used to do uh just some of their key headlines here before i get into some of the stuff Transport experts say rail block backlogs and labor shortages are delaying shipments of U.S. grain. That's going to affect uh, the food processing plants because grain goes into bread, cereals, I mean, tons of stuff. Next headline, CEOs of meatpacking giants deny price fixing amid soaring food prices. Of course, they're going to deny that even if they, they are doing it. Um, there was a key Arizona food pantry picking up the pieces after an out-of-control fire in Maricopa, Arizona. Now, I'm going to go into this one just to find out, because it seems like some, there's been a lot of fire at food places. Uh, food processing plants, even. And different weird things, and we're going to dig into that a little bit, too. But... Um, a key Arizona food pantry is picking up after pieces, uh, picking up pieces after an out of control fire. 
Maricopa Food Pantry CEO Jim Schof said the devastating pantry fire on March 28th couldn't have come at a worse time of peak demand and concerns over food shortages. The electrical fire started at noon inside an old battery-powered pallet jack. Oh, okay, that makes sense then. So that sucks. Uh, Once it went up, it went up, Schof said. We lost everything but the box truck, two forklifts and one pallet jack. It just spread from trailer to trailer. Every trailer we had was filled with diesel. I had 600 gallons of diesel on this property. The diesel fuel in a propane tank went up in flames. Schof called it a terrible time for the nonprofit food pantry at Mountain View Community Church that he and his wife Alice started 20 years ago. They still plan on... Uh, they still plan to expand into a new warehouse, which they hope to build on the site, though project funding is now in doubt. I was storing up food because I think there will be a food shortage later this year, Shof said. All our backup burned down. We do have some backup rather than just put $350,000 into semis again. I'm just going to put it into the warehouse. We had about 15000 in our reserve budget. The insurance companies maxed us out at 46300 Near the pantry's outer perimeter, a large pile of charred embers, twisted metal, and scorched cans all are all that remain of the trailer's cargo. So, in Maricopa County, Arizona, that's going to cause some serious issues, you know, at a food pantry. You know, that's where some of the poorest people rely on just for a daily sustenance. So, with that, we'll go back to... Food price inflation getting worse. Farming on idle land disallowed due to climate goals by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. See, we have a lot of farming land, and a lot of people don't understand how the USDA works with farmland. Um, They have basically taken it within their realm of expertise. I guess you can call it that. Uh, to tell farmers where they can plant and where they can't plant in any given year. Uh, there's like crop, it's a crop rotation thing that, you know, their smart people have come up with to make it so farmers can't, especially if they take kind of any, any government funding at all, it really puts them under the thumb of the USDA Um, There's a lot of my old job that I worked. We did a lot of work for. um, I don't remember what the organization's called, but it's basically government funding to for farmers that they can get this funding to put up uh, irrigation systems on their their fields. But then it puts them under a certain guidelines put up by the what is the NCRS or something like that, something similar to that. It's basically a government funded operation, but they have to abide by certain guidelines before they'll get their money to pay for these uh, sprinkling systems. So the USDA by doing that. So if we're in a food crisis, but we have land we could grow stuff on. And that's another thing I've talked about once before as well is um fertilizer these farms depend on a lot of fertilizer and we've had issues with fertile being able to produce fertilizer and i i think it was china 
or someplace where we get a lot of fertilizer from. There was a, a fire, I think, at that plant. Now, don't quote me on this. This could be misinformation. <laughs> There's something to do with that. I, I'd have to find the article again and figure it out. But uh, Food price inflation getting worse and farming on idle land disallowed due to climate goals. So let's read this article. Food price inflation is rising at an alarming rate with the annual rate en route to become the highest in recent years, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The consumer price index for all food rose by 1% from February to March when compared to March 2021. Food prices were higher by 8.8% in March 2022, data from the USDA shows. The agency predicts in 2022 all food CPI to rise by 5 to 6%, which is much higher than the 3.9% hike in 2021, 3.4% hike in 2020, and 1.9% hike in 2019. The 20-year historical average CPI stands at 2.4%. Prices for restaurant purchases designated as food away from home in the CPI increased 0.3% in March 2022, a 6.9% increase from March 2021, the USDA reported. Prices for grocery store and supermarket food purchases designated as food at home in the CPI increased 1.5% from February to March 2022 and were 10% higher than in March 2021. Food at home prices are expected to increase by 5 to 6% in 2022, with food away from home rising by 55 to 6.5%. And any of that stuff, you understand that if you went out to eat at a fast food restaurant that, let's say, early 2000s, you could feed a family of four for 15 bucks or less sometimes, uh, which now you're lucky if it's less than 30 bucks. And then again, you know, the at-home costs, you know, that means going to the grocery store and bringing the stuff home and preparing it, you know, even that's not that cheap, but you can typically get more uh, meats and vegetables and things like that to make a couple meals for a family of four versus, you know, one night out of 30 bucks versus, say, two two evening dinners for a family of four for the same price. <clears throat> the rise in food prices is due to multiple factors, including a shortage of labor, which I don't understand where that's all coming from. Other than less people are getting paid to stay home would be the logical thing I would think of. I don't know if that's true, so I'm not going to claim that. But there are literally millions of people in this country. I don't know how there could be a, a shortage of labor other than people just not working. Uh, an increase in trucking costs. Uh, that goes with fuel prices, especially. Uh, and with labor shortages, places are paying drivers more money just to get them to keep working for them or new hires to come in. Uh, the rise in the cost of fertilizers, that's true fact, and Russia's war in Ukraine, which is, you know, disrupting grains and stuff as well that we used to import from Ukraine and Russia. Um, let's see. The war has disrupted the flow of food items from Ukrainian ports while also affecting the country's spring planting. Russia and Ukraine together make up about 20% of the world's corn sales and more than 25% of global wheat trade. Among the nearly 50 commodity price series we study, wheat spot price changes stand out as a bellwether for food price inflation. 
Given exceptionally tight labor markets and already elevated inflationary pressure from commodity prices prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we suspect food inflation will remain firm in months ahead. In March, several agricultural groups, including the American Bakers Association, American Farm Bureau Federation, and Agricultural Retailers Association, wrote to the USDA requesting that farming be allowed on idle land under the Conservation Reserve Program. About 26% of CRP acres are classified as prime farmland. However, the USDA rejected the request, insisting that such a move would harm climate goals. Uh, it is a critical point. It is critical to point out that if we allow the tillage of CRP acres, acres, the marginal at best benefit to crop production will be coupled with the significant and detrimental impact on producers, efforts to mitigate climate change, and maintain the long-term health of their land, the agency said in its response. So what essentially that sounds like to me is they would rather people starve or go broke trying to not starve. That's your government, folks. Uh, But, you know, maybe if it gets bad enough, people can put enough pressure on these uh, agencies. And uh, it's going to be a short term thing that we're going to be dealing with the whole Russia, Ukraine thing. But if we have the land here and can short term do it, make it work, you know, like I say, I don't know if it's even possible with, you know, if we've got shortages of fertilizer and different things like that. I mean, I don't I don't know. I'm not a farmer. I not, haven't ever had really a great green thumb. <laughs> uh, pretty decent at building stuff. You know, I've been good at working with my hands, but there's. Uh, yeah, farming. Uh, I am been really big into that so i'll i guess the biggest takeaway from all this is just to understand and plan for these increases in prices and or shortages if you know what i mean that doesn't mean go out and go into debt on a credit card buying all this stuff it's not going to happen overnight this is a slow working process but it, it is coming i mean if you go to your stores and you see there's a lot of empty spaces where they just can't refill stuff from certain places. Uh, it's it's coming, so just prepare for it. So we come to another article here about um, fires at food processing facilities raise concerns. Uh, some of this could just been freak accidents. Other who knows. On Thursday, April 21st, a small plane crashed at the General Mills food processing complex in Covington, Georgia. The plane collided into four trailers in an isolated area several hundred yards from the main plant shortly after taking off from the nearby Covington Airport, killing the pilot and passenger, but leaving the General Mills employees unscathed. <coughs> oh, excuse me. So I had heard that this plant sits next to an airport. So there's a really good possibility that was just a freak accident. Um, so I'm taking that little bit there. You know, it wasn't an on-purpose incident. <laughs> Taken in isolation, the incident is unremarkable except for the uh, personal tragedy of the two fatalities involved. However, the incident is eerily similar to a plane crash 
that happened just days earlier on April 13th when a plane crashed into an Idaho potato and food processing plant. Some observers have gone further and connected these events with recent anecdotes of fires and other accidents at a multitude of food processing facilities, raising concerns that such accidents could cause major problems for a food industry supply chain already under significant duress. Anecdotes of such industrial accidents in recent years are easy to find. Last August, a fire broke out at a meat processing facility in Georgia, leaving the plant incapacitated. The two incidents in Oregon have also raised alarm. A boiler explosion at a Shearer's food plants on February 22nd and a fire that destroyed the headquarters of organic food distributor Azure Standard on April 19th. The prevalence of these accidents is easy to overstate. Out of over 36,000 food and beverage processing facilities in the United States, such accidents have only occurred in a few dozen in the past year. Fires and machinery malfunctions are common within the industry, and these sporadic accidents mostly only temporarily and, and incapacitate the facilities where they occur. Even so, some have expressed concern that these accidents will impose a particular burden on the food supply chain at a time when the industry's, industry is uniquely vulnerable. Mahesh Varina, I guess that's what his name is, uh, CEO of supply chain technology company Parkour SC, says the industry has faced unique challenges in the recent past. The food and beverage supply chain has been seen some unprecedented shocks in recent years that have forced the industry to address some harsh realities, Verena told the Epic Times. With 1.6 billion tons of food being wasted each year, supply chain resilience and the ability to anticipate adverse factors, course correct in real time and recover quickly are now critically important in continuing to meet increasing customer demands for faster delivery and customer satisfaction. As the food supply chain reels from the ring, ring wow, lingering effects of the CCP virus lockdowns, these accidents, however, anecdotal, are not doing any favors to a system already under stress. Such disasters as fires, explosions, and plane crashes are highly costly and deleterious to the efficiency of the system, raising alarms that any increasing prevalence of these accidents could threaten the domestic food supply and cause a avoidable scarcity. So, <clears throat> there you have it. So, there are still people kind of looking into these incidents, you know, because so far they've all been, you know, investigators have said there's no been no foul play in any of them. So we'll have to just, that's a ongoing, we'll have to just keep an eye on thing. <clears throat> so with that, all I can say is uh, try and start preparing now. Not go crazy. You don't need to go, you know, buy a shipping container and fill it full of crap. <laughs> I mean, you can, I guess, obviously, but <clears throat> it's just going to help. Uh, shorten up the supply for other people that may also need supplies. Um, so when I come back, I'm going to do a little dad talk about student debt and personal accountability with such items. So when we come back, we're going to do a little talk about that in just a moment. All 
Okay, in this little segment here, we're going to talk about this student debt stuff. It's been an ongoing thing, and uh, certain people, especially like people like Bernie Sanders and government officials, have tried to get into this whole debate about college should be free. Now they've kind of backtracked to, uh, you know, two years of community college or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and part of the problem is these are the same people that caused the problems of our student debt, uh, anomaly in the first place, but then they're going to come to us and give us the solution. Um, we've seen when the government took over the student loan programs for the most part, you know, the, uh, private banks and stuff kind of just got pushed to the side because they were, you know, effectively saying, Hey, you know, what is your, you know, doing a credit check, uh, which most college kids probably don't have a whole lot of credit, but trying to get a game plan of, okay, what's your, what's your game plan here on which classes you take in, you know, how much time is it going to take, uh, to, you know, get them a loan that made sense for them. Once the government took over, it was basically, oh, yeah, everybody should go, you know, encouraging everybody to go to college. You need a college education in this world to make it, you know, to make good money. And uh, it was all a bunch of crap, of course, because now we have over a trillion dollars of student debt. Um, And you can ask some of even the older generation that uh bought into that lie that are still paying off student debt and especially if you've got a loan through the federal government it is a loan you cannot claim bankruptcy on so more recently the biden administration has decided they are going to try and change the student loan programs and cancel the debt for over 40,000 borrowers. Uh, Epic Times reports on that. New changes to two federal student loan programs will immediately wipe out debts for 40,000 borrowers, which I'm sure is not really barely a drop in the bucket. You know, if if we've got over a trillion dollars worth of student debt, 40,000 borrowers is really not that much. So, uh, I'll quit interrupting my article here. I'll get to the point. (laughs) Uh, That'll wipe out the debts for 40,000 borrowers and bring 3.6 million closer to relief, the education department said Tuesday. The changes will fix long-standing failures in the public service loan forgiveness and income-driven repayment programs, department officials said. Once the changes are implemented, 40,000 borrowers borrowers will have their debts erased under the PSLF program. More than 3.6 million borrowers will also receive at least three years of additional credit toward IDR forgiveness. Specifically, the department said it is working to end what it called forbearance steering, the practice of loan service companies pushing borrowers into forbearance rather than helping them access an IDR plan. According to federal student aid, a borrower is always responsible for paying the interest that accrues during the forbearance period. 
Unpaid interest is usually added to the loan amount owed when the forbearance period ends, meaning that the borrower will likely pay more than what it was originally owed. By contrast, if a borrower qualifies for IDR accrued and unpaid interest, will be covered by the federal government using taxpayer money. The borrower will have to recertify information, such as income and family size, each year in order to remain on the repayment plan. A borrower advised to choose an IDR plan instead of forbearance can get a reduced payment, stay in good standing, and make progress toward loan forgiveness. A borrower advised to choose forbearance, particularly long-term consecutive or serial uses of forbearance, can see their loan balance and monthly payments grow due to interest capitalization and lead to delinquency or default, the department said. To address the issue, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona said he has directed the FSA office to restrict loan service companies' abilities to enroll borrowers in forbearance by text or email, conduct an external review of how forbearance is being used, and work with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to do regular audits of forbearance use. In addition, the FSA will conduct a one-time adjustment to borrowers' accounts that will count forbearances of 12 consecutive months and more than 36 cumulative months towards IDR and PSLF loan forgiveness. The FSA will also do a one-time revision for IDR that will allow any months when borrowers made payments to count toward forgiveness, regardless of the repayment plan, along with counting months in deferment prior to 2013 toward IDR forgiveness. The department said it has so far canceled more than $17 billion in debt for 725,000 borrowers. That includes $6.8 billion for more than 113,000 public servants through changes to the PC, PSLF. $7.8 billion more for 400,000 people with severe disabilities. $1.2 billion for those who attended now-defunct ITT technical institutes and about $2 billion for 105,000 students who claim to be defrauded by their school. Now, some of that makes sense then. If there was these pop-up schools that uh, convinced people to go to school there, and then they take their money and go bankrupt, and they don't end up with an education, but leave you with the loan, eh, I can kind of see where that you didn't get what you were promised type deal there. But how many people uh, didn't take out student loans? They worked it off, paid for it up front, went to college and got a degree, and they're actually uh, doing it the right way. Would agree with, you know, kids that were just told they need to go get these degrees, which in some cases, uh, actually a lot of cases, a lot of these companies were requiring you to have a a degree in something. And then... You may have went and got the degree, and then the jobs either aren't there anymore, or it's uh, the companies require more stuff on top of that for a position. So people will go back to school again, and they just think, okay, well, I'll just go to school, get this all done with, and then I'll have this job coming up again. And there was a big setup, I think, in all of this, which was, I mean, even local governments were saying, oh, I need to go to college, you got to get a college education, or, you know, to get the good paying jobs. Well, how many of those people out there have got them good paying jobs, or do they have just school debt now? 
and they're working at crappy jobs that don't pay much and still have to pay that money back. Um, there is being a little bit of course correction on that because some of these places are learning that some of these kids just went and got worthless degrees because the company required that you have some kind of degree, even though they have no work experience because they've been in school this whole time and they come to the workforce and they don't know anything. They would have been better off offering them some, you know, maybe possibly a lower paying to start out internship, find out if they're really invested in wanting to do that job uh, before you just start, you know, paying them good money because they have a piece of paper that says they went to school. Really not, in my opinion, a, a, a good business model. <laughs> but hey, you know, what do I know? There, we've got to figure this out for sure. But like I say, we keep putting people in positions of power that create these problems for all of us. And then they want to come back and say, oh, now we have the solution. And it's a vicious cycle. My advice is, especially if you're a teen or, you know, getting ready to go graduate high school, hopefully, and thinking, oh, I want to go to college for this or that. I mean, there are certain things that, yes, you do need to go to college. If you want to be a doctor, uh, a lawyer, certain things like that, you're going to have to go to college for. But remember, there's always, there will always be the option of being able to go into apprenticeships if if you're willing to actually put in some hard work into construction jobs, uh, even power companies, linemen, line women, I mean, men and women both do these jobs. It just depends on what you really have some drive to do. Uh, even smaller things like learning learning the, the business ropes of, say, your own uh, restaurant, you know, different things like that. There's a lot of things you don't necessarily need to go to college and get a degree in to be successful at. In the trades, especially, there's a lot of places that you can get experience. And most of those places pay pretty decent. I mean, that's essentially why I still work in construction area. <laughs> Mining now, but was construction pretty much since I was young. But I never really wanted to go to school. It, it kind of bored me for the most part. And I think that's where my boy gets it from. <laughs> he hates school. <laughs> but he would rather play. Uh, and I've tried to explain it to him. I was like, look, most of the stuff you're going to need to know in life is going to be K through 12. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of places are failing at even setting our kids up to do that. Um. But all I can say is be specific about if you do believe you need to go to school, be specific about what you need to do. Uh, the elective part of it, I think, is a bunch of crap that you have to pay for that I don't think kids should have to pay for. You have to take these electoral credits before you can go into your major I think that's a bunch of crap because most of that stuff is stuff that has nothing to do with what you're trying to major in. It's a money scheme for these colleges to rip kids off 
and then you know you're stuck paying that money if you're getting loans to do it before you ever even go into your major and then at that point you're you know probably maybe you've changed your mind at that point because you're burned out from doing these stupid electorals that do nothing for you in life so my thing is is try and figure this out before you get yourself into debt and look at other options don't buy into the narrative that you have to do this or do that i mean there's plenty of successful people that didn't go to college that have have made a good life for themselves so just keep that in mind that's my that's my dad dad talk to you is don't start life out in the hole if you can at all possibly do that because it will make it a lot harder for your life <laughs> just ask the people that are still paying student don't student loans all right <clears throat> this is going to be a short segment um, i'm going to take a break and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about energy costs and kind of where we're at and what i think we could do but more than likely our government won't do because of climate agenda and we'll break that down here in just a moment all right so this segment we're going to talk about energy prices now i've talked about this numerous times before and unless you're in the normal people category down here in the real world and you don't you're not like a movie star or uh, some kind of billionaire that thinks they know you know why do why do poor people not be able to afford all this stuff you know they don't they don't get where poor people and middle class people come from and energy prices will hurt the poorest the first and the worst so we have uh gas prices obviously i think it w- was is one of the main drivers right now of a lot of cost of things going up not not to mention i mean it's a compiling thing of you know supply chain issues and different things like that as well but how do all these goods get to the stores in the first place well you got to have a either gasoline or diesel powered engine freight truck i mean even your freight trains run on a diesel engine that powers an electric motor i mean they want to say these trains are electric engines but they're not they're diesel powered the power is a generator that powers the drive it's a it's a different system uh, something i'm not going to talk about right now but all everything is delivered with something that uses a fossil fuel combustion engine now even power plants have been going over to natural gas to be more emission friendly but we're we're not addressing the problems in the right way it's all oh the climate change you know we, if we don't do all these things then you know the the planet we're all going to die it's like it's a, it's the thing they've learned is fear drives people to do whatever they want so if they can keep the fear up 
they can do whatever they want and get away with it. So with fuel prices and energy costs in general, I mean, they've cracked down on fracking, which, I mean, I'm not saying fracking doesn't have consequences to it. I think some of the places that have legitimate claims that, you know, it's our water, our drinking water will light on fire and has a weird taste to it. I would agree that that's probably from fracking because how fracking works is they drill down into this hard rock shell uh, formation that's typically close to some kind of underwater or underground water source. So if you're pumping uh, fluid and whatever else in there to break up the rock to release these gases, those gases can be forced into uh, these underground water reservoirs that typically are drilled into, uh, especially back east, you know, we here in the mountain west get a lot of our water sources from the mountains and snowpack, so we don't have to deal with that stuff. Uh, but back in more of the, the flatlands of the United States, when they frack there, it's, you know, it's breaking up all that rock and to get the gas and oil out of those places. It's forcing it into places maybe that it shouldn't be. I, I will say that from what little knowledge I have of that, I can say that that would be, I could see that being a problem. But regardless of that, if we want to keep our energy prices down, so, I mean, if you was living paycheck to paycheck before, uh, you're really hating life now because you didn't have any extra money to offset the cost of energy going up especially with gas prices. So if you're trying to get back and forth to work and your price to fill up your tank of gas to do that has doubled, um, how is that impacting your paycheck-to-paycheck lifestyle? Then you got to really start deciding, okay, what am I going to have to put this on a credit card so I can, just so I can get to work this week? And then, you know, hopefully you can scrounge up some money somewhere to pay that credit card charge back off. It's uh, a cycle that this whole climate change agenda, in my opinion, is going to cause death to a lot of people in the long term. Now, whether or not anybody's ever going to compile any data on that to expose it down the road, I don't know. Hopefully we can be smart and course correct. Because we have enough natural resources here in the United States that we don't need to rely on the Middle East, Russia, Ukraine, all, all these places that we have given up us doing it here for cheaper labor in these other countries to ship it to us. So when you have these foreign conflicts, we have to pay the price. I mean... The audacity of our president, you know, just to claim, oh, yeah, this these sanctions on Russia and stuff are not going to, or, you know, they're going to inevitably cause price hikes here, you know, for fuel and, you know, price of oil going up and all that stuff by, by us putting these sanctions. So there is a cost to this. Well, the cost to it was you going in and first day in office canceling the Keystone Pipeline, 
which, like I said, it could have been completed by now had that not happened. And, you know, like Jen Psaki's trying to claim that it's not an oil field. Uh, but no, it would be pumping oil from an oil field to our refineries from Canada, which, like I said, it follows an the X, or the XL pipeline follows the Keystone pipeline. It's they're two of the same things. They're in the same uh, right away, basically. But you know, you got all these people that are pushing this climate agenda stuff that is not doing it. So I, I found, I found an older article. I think this one is from, oh, where is it? Twenty fifteen, maybe. Okay, so January 27th, 2015. So this is from the Washington Free Beacon. So it says, Foreign firm is funding U.S. green groups tied to state-owned Russian oil company. This is uh, 2015. So it's executives at a Bermudan firm funneling money to U.S. environmentalist-run investment funds with Russian tycoons. A shadowy... Bermudan company that has funneled tens of millions of dollars to anti-fracking environmentalist groups in the United States is run by executives with deep ties to Russian oil interests and offshore money laundering schemes involving members of President Vladimir Putin's inner circle. I don't doubt any of this stuff. It's, you know, kind of one of those things that I think is still going on. So that's why I think this story is... really relevant to a lot of the crap we're having to deal with now. So this just kind of, I think, outline this this one individual scheme. But I think there's a lot more of this going on, and I have another one. It's a more recent article from the Epic Times that I'm going to follow up. So here we go. One of those executives, Nicholas Hoskins, is a director at a hedge fund management firm that has invested heavily in Russian oil and gas, he is also senior counsel at the Bermudan law firm Wakefield Quinn and the vice president of a London-based investment firm whose president until recently chaired the board of the state-owned Russian oil company Rosneft. In addition to those roles, Haskin, or Hoskins sorry, is a director at a company called Klein Limited. No one knows where that firm's money comes from. Its only publicly documented activities have been transfers of $23 million to U.S. environmentalist groups that push policies that would hamstring surging American oil and gas production, which has hurt Russia's energy-reliant economy. With oil prices plunging as a result of a fracking-induced oil glut in the United States, experts say the links between Russians' oil interests secretive foreign political donors, and high-profile American environmentalists suggest Russia may be backing anti-fracking efforts in the United States. The interests of Russian oil companies and American environmentalist financiers intersect at a Bermuda-based law firm called Wakefield Quinn. The firm acts as a corporate registered agent, providing office space for clients and for some managing the day-to-day affairs, according to its website. As many as 20 companies and investment funds with ties to the Russian government are Wakefield Quinn clients. Many list the firm's address as an official documentation, or on official documentation. Klein Limited also shares that address. Documents filed with Bermuda's registrar of companies 
lists just two individuals associated with the company. Hoskins, Wakefield Quinn Senior Counsel and Managing Director, and Marley Smith, a corporate administrator at the firm. According to the documents filed with Bermuda's Registrar of Companies, Klein Limited was incorporated in March of 2011 exclusively, and I get this, for philanthropic purposes, <laughs> meaning no part of the net earnings inures to the benefit of any private shareholder or individual. The company does not propose to carry on business in Bermuda, the document stated. The only publicly available documentation of any business conducted by Klein Limited were two internal revenue service filings by the California-based Sea Change Foundation, which showed that Klein had contributed $23 million to the group in 2010 and 2011. Klein Limited was responsible for more than 40% of contributions to Sea Change during those years. The foundation passed those millions along to some of the nation's most prominent and politically active environmentalist groups, the Sierra Club, the National or the Natural Resource Defense Council, the League of Conservation Voters, and the Center for American Progress, were among the recipients of Sea Change's $100 million in grants in 2010 and 2011. Neither Wakefield Quinn nor Sea Change responded to multiple requests for more information about the relationships with Klein Limited. None of this foreign corporation's funding is disclosed in any way, the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee wrote of the company in a report last year. Uh, This is clearly a deceitful way to hide the source of millions of dollars that are active in our system attempting to affect political change. The Sierra Club, which received nearly $8.5 million from sea change in 2010 and 2011, launched its Beyond Natural Gas campaign the following year. The effort has become one of the largest and best-funded environmentalist campaigns combating fracking and the extraction of natural gas in general. Sea Change's skeletal staff quietly shovels tens of millions of dollars out the door annually to combat climate change, and that's pretty much all it does, noted Inside Philanthropy, which awarded the foundation its sharpest laser focus in grant-making award last year. Nathaniel Simmons and his wife run the foundation and are, except for Klein Limited, its only donors. Simmons, a hedge fund millionaire who commutes to work across San Francisco Bay aboard a 50-foot yacht, also runs a venture capital firm that invests in companies that benefit from environmental and energy policies that sea change grantees promote. Uh, Yeah, that seems like a pretty good scheme to me. Simmons himself has ties to Klein Limited. Several Wakefield Quinn attorneys are listed as directors of hedge funds that his firm manages and in which Sea Change has assets. Senior counsel Rod Forrest was listed on documents filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission as a director of two investment funds, Medallion International Limited and Meritage Holdings Limited, in which Sea Change had tens of millions invested while it received money from Klein Limited. Simmons Company runs the Meritage Fund, the Medallion Fund is run by Renaissance Technologies, the hedge fund management firm run by his father, billionaire and Democrat megadonor Jim Simmons. Both funds listed Wakefield Quinn's Hamilton, Bermuda, address on SEC filings. Wakefield Quinn's Hoskins and Smith, as well as a number of other employees of Wakefield Quinn, have worked in some capacity for companies or investment funds owned by or tied to Russian state-owned corporations and high-level officials in the country. Hoskins, Forrest, and another Wakefield employee named Penny Cornell 
were all listed as executives of Spectrum Partners Limited, a fund with offices in Moscow, Cyprus, and Bermuda, Cornell at the address of Wakefield Quinn's offices. According to a performance report for one of Spectrum's partners' funds, its portfolio consists of Russian and CIS former Soviet state securities and securities outside of Russia or CIS but having significant economic or business involvement with Russia and or CIS. As of 2008, more than half of the fund's holdings were in the oil and gas sectors. Numerous executives at Wakefield Quinn have ties to Russian oil and gas companies, including Rosneft, which is majority owned by the Russian government and in 2013 became the largest oil company in the world. Hoskins is the vice president of a London-based company called Merquard Services Limited and a member of the firm's board, according to its website. The company's president and the chairman of its parent company, Bermuda-based Marquard Holding Limited, is Hans-Jord Rudloff. Rudloff is also a former vice chairman of the Rosneft's board. I'm starting to wonder now if that's where uh, the Bidens got the idea to throw Hunter on the Ukrainian gas company's board. <laughs> Seems like it was a pretty good scheme that, uh, as far as I can tell, so far has worked out pretty uh, heftily in these people making a lot of money. Oh, let's see. Hoskins is also... Oh, okay, yeah. Hoskins is also a director at a Bermuda-based subsidiary of Russian investment bank Troika Dialogue, that firm organized an initial public offering for Timon Oil and Gas, which is run by Russian oligarch Alexander Lebedev. Lebedev. The Environmental Policy Alliance, which provided the Washington Free Beacon with a copy of an upcoming report on Klein Limited's Kremlin ties, said Wakefield Quinn's ties to environmental financiers and Russian oil barons merit closer scrutiny. The American public deserves to know whether environmentalists are attacking U.S. energy companies at the behest of a Russian government that would like nothing more than to see their international competition weakened, Will Coggan, a senior research analyst at the EPA, said in an emailed statement. In the face of mounting evidence, environmental groups are going to have to start answering hard questions about their international funding sources, Coggan said. The overlap between executives at firms with ties to Russian oil interests and a multi-million dollar donor to U.S. environmentalist groups has some experts worried that Russians may be replicating anti-fracking tactics used in Europe to attack the practice of the United States. I have met allies who can report that Russia, as part of their sophisticated information and disinformation operations, engaged actively with so-called non-governmental organizations, environmental organizations working against shell gas to maintain European independence on imported Russian gas. Anders Fogh Rasmussen, formerly NATO's Secretary General, said last year, it is unlikely that the Kremlin is directly involved in doing so in the United States, according to Ron Arnold of the Center for the Defense of Free Enterprise. If anybody in Russia is behind all the secretive Bermuda investment house of law firm action, it's most likely some oligarch bidding against U.S. competition, he said in an email. Now, I wouldn't uh, doubt any of this. Um, okay, so I guess it goes on here. 
Uh, Arnold, the author of Undue Influence, Wealthy Foundations, Grant-Driven Environmentalist Groups, and Zealous Bureaucrats that Control Your Future, said that the opacity of Klein Limited's involvement with the Sea Change Foundation exemplifies attempts to shield the source of donations to such groups. Quote, in my experience of trying to penetrate offshore money funnels for U.S. leftist foundations and green groups, I have found that Liechtenstein, Panama, and Bermuda are the big three green equivalents of the Cayman Islands for hedge fund managers, totally opaque and impervious to my specially designated research tools, Arnold said. Uh, So, I don't know if that's a problem or not. It sounds to me like it would be. So, to follow that up, there is a story from the Epic Times. It goes, to reduce gas prices, get government out of the way. From January 2020 to April 2022, the price of a gallon of gas in the U.S. increased 64% from 2.58 to 4.22. That's seven times faster than the increase in the consumer price index. The fact that gas prices are increasing so much faster than the overall increase in inflation has led to charges that oil companies are a cartel and using their market power to jack up gas prices and reap big profits. President Biden added fuel to the fire, no pun intended, by saying oil and gas companies shouldn't pad their profits at the expense of hardworking Americans. The president's attack on oil companies is nothing new. Whenever gas prices surge, it's easy to point fingers and play the blame game. After all, if oil companies aren't responsible for surging gas prices, Who is? Before answering that question, it's revealing to take a longer-term perspective on gas prices. Most people will be surprised to learn that gas prices actually declined from 331 in January 2014 to 255 by January 2020. That decline of 23% over a six-year period compares to an increase in the CPI over the same period of 10%. That means for six years from 2014 to 2020, gas prices were declining while overall prices were on the increase. It's only been since early 2020, and especially since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that gas prices have taken off. But if oil companies are so adept at colluding on prices, why did this supposedly all-powerful, all-knowing cartel allow prices to steadily decline for such a long period of time and wait until 2020 to turn on the accelerator? Something happened. What happened is that the pandemic cut deeply into the demand for gasoline. By April 20th, 2020, crude oil price contracts actually dropped to a negative $37 a barrel. This effectively shut off the flow of capital to fund new exploration. Even worse, new fracking sites weren't developed to replace old ones. As a result, the production of crude dropped from a pre-pandemic high of almost 13 million barrels per day in late 2019 to 9.7 million barrels by May 2021, a whopping decrease of 25% in only a year and a half. But why, after the demand for gasoline increased again as pandemic lockdowns were removed, didn't the supply of crude oil come back? The latest production level of 11.6 million barrels per day is still 11% below its pre-pandemic peak, and that's in spite of sharply higher crude oil prices. The White House would like us to believe that the lethargic supply response on the part of the oil companies to sharply higher demand is related to its power as a cartel to keep gas prices and therefore its profits as high as possible. 
What the president ignores is his role in holding back the supply of crude oil. His war on fossil fuels has led to restrictions on oil exploration, leases on federal lands, new environmental standards, as well as tougher oversight of existing regulations have created disincentives in reopening existing wells, as well as exploring for new drilling. Global climate tests have also served as justification for disapproving new oil and gas pipelines. And in despite Oh, and in spite of the geopolitical implications of pressuring Europe nations to cut off their dependence on Russian crude, the White House is unwilling to reverse its decision to kill the Keystone XL pipeline. These governmental constraints have dampened incentives for a more forceful supply response on the part of oil companies. On top of all that, new banking regulations and ESG criteria foisted on fossil fuel producers made it more difficult for a for financial institutions and private equity firms to fund oil exploration. The key to understanding the recent surge in gas prices is not conjuring images of oil executives in a backroom figuring out how best to gauge its customers. Rather, it's to look at the supply of crude. When supply increased between 2014 to 2020, gas prices declined. But when the supply plummeted after the pandemic hit in early 2020, gas prices increased. The only positive response the administration has offered to increase crude oil supplies is the announcement to tap 1 million barrels of oil per day from its strategic reserves. There's a reason they were strategic. (laughs) Although this temporary fix will help, it's a drop in the bucket when compared to current market needs. The best thing the government can do now is to end its assault on fossil fuels, an assault that serves to hold back supply, The oil industry doesn't need subsidies, rather it needs government to get out of the way and allow free markets to do their magic, namely allowing the spike in gas prices to create strong incentives for oil companies to get fuel to gas pumps as quickly as possible. That's what it will take to get supply in sync with demand. There you have it, folks. Pretty much everything the government does is in its own self-interest for the most part. I mean, here and there you've got representatives that will actually do the right thing, or at least try to do the right thing. It seems to be the swamp keeps getting thicker and thicker with people that are just willing to give in to the swamp and do swampy things. So, unfortunately, like I said, this, uh, this year, midterm elections, people need to do their homework. Start looking up what these candidates' records are, you know, who they are. Um, Like I say, Mike Lee is up for re-election this year. He's not perfect. He's human. But he has been the best constitutionally that Utah's probably ever seen and possibly probably ever will see. Uh, Our demographics here in Utah are changing, as, you know, a lot of other people are going to see that in other states as well from the influx of out-of-staters moving out of their blue liberal lockdown states to red non-lockdown states, you're going to see a change in your demographics and how these people vote. Regardless of you saying, we don't care if you come here, just don't bring your politics with you. Um, All I can say is good luck, I guess. All I can say is we got to keep talking to these people and explaining our point of view 
not through a Twitter platform, but face-to-face conversations and understanding the problems that we're facing and what the consequences of bad policy have created. And through that dialogue, hopefully getting to better resolution of these problems and not just every time there's a problem, taking the easy way out and saying, oh, we need government to do something about it. That is the whole reason we have the problems we have in the first place. But, you know, being accountable for our actions is what's got to happen. And that accountability eventually is going to, you know, as they like to say, come home to roost. Because our inaction to take that accountability into our own hands and do something about it by getting informed, uh, getting up off our butts. I know it's, it's, it's real easy these days to get just locked into social media or what's the newest thing on Netflix or whatever else to sit down and do nothing. Then you end up with situations like we're at now. And like the only reason I really decided to even start this podcast in the first place is to give more of a, hey, I, I'm down here with the normal people that make this country run. You know, I mean, Washington likes to think they're the only things keeping this country alive. But it's, it's people like me and you, uh, if you're listening to this program, that want the truth. And I, like I've said before, it's it's a mess of crap to dig through to really find what the truth is. Because most of your news, you know, air quotes, news outlets are giving you their opinion. They're not giving you the actual facts. And when they are trying to give you news, they're selectively editing it to make it fit their narrative. Now, whether or not they're going to course correct that, because I mean, like CNN, they still want to put people like Brian Stelter in front of the camera, you know, with his reliable resources and stuff like that, whatever they want to try and brand him with, even though all he's doing is still giving you his opinion. And it's a left-wing opinion. So, I mean, how far, I mean, if you're a leftist, then you probably uh, take it as news. And there's not a whole lot of places anymore where I feel like you can get truthful news. I mean, even on the right side, you've got the more extreme places that they do kind of the same thing because as far as a business model goes, you know, the the worst stuff is what always makes it on the news and it's going to get edited to make it a lot of the times look worse than it really is. But there's never really solutions to it. It's just about getting ratings. And it's like a big ratings game. Now, there are times when I will watch certain segments of Fox News just to get, you know, you got to keep, get an opinion from both sides to kind of find out where the truth is in the middle, I feel, anyways. Um, I don't know how everybody else feels about it. One thing I also want to do with uh, these challenges ahead coming to us if you have a business and you're looking for people i like to say i have i'm not a tech person this is kind of a a part-time thing doing this podcast i've 
I, I want to help the most I can. I don't know how many people listen to this program, but if you have a business and you would like me to give you plugs on here, I'm not, I'm not charging, but I don't even make any money doing this. It's just, just for my own personal reasons, I guess. But if you have a business, you're looking for people, uh, send me an email with all the information and I'll, I'll definitely do what I can to get it out there. Uh, I'll post it across my social media sites or wherever um, at the email of the Nielsen show 2021 at outlook.com or even just send me your your comments. Let me know how life is for where, wherever you're at and, you know, what things have had an effect on you. Uh, I would love, you know, if you would like me to anyways, I would love to read the emails, you know, from the normal people that make this country run. Because, uh, you know, politicians aren't going to fix our problems. They're going to try and fix their problems. And, you know, it's kind of human nature, I would say, that we all try and, you know, have our own self-serving interests to, to some extent in mind over others for the most part. Um, but the the trying times that are coming up, we're going to have to realize that even if there's people that we totally disagree with that may be struggling, the right thing to do is to still try and figure out how we can help them out, you know, whether it be financially, uh, if they need money for food. The right thing to do is to help them out. Even if we disagree on everything, it's oh, it's one thing that people from either side are going to have to come to an agreement on. Put the politics aside and understand that we're all human. We're all floating around on this rock through space all at the same time and having to deal with all the same problems. So... With that, uh, I think I'll end it that I, I have heard from different places that there are some pretty critical things coming up in the Supreme Court this year. Um, we've seen the freak out from people on the right that that Katanji Jackson, uh, she was going to, is going to replace one of the more liberal uh people on the court he's retiring this year so i think she goes she's been confirmed she goes into the supreme court i think in august something like that later this fall so all these court cases aren't even going to have her uh opinions or vote up or down on them so with that well i think we got a look to there possibly being a lot of civil unrest again, uh, mostly peaceful protests, I'm sure they'll be called, but be prepared for these things. Um, you know, within the last, I don't know, four, four to 10, uh, five to 10 years, I would say, I would say the, the increase in crime due to, in my opinion, economy related issues now like i say these people in political power caused the problems with their crappy policies 
And then, you know, they're the ones that say we're the only ones that have the solutions to fix this. So we got to stay in power, you know, to, to fix this problem. Not telling you that they're the ones that created it. But like I said, we, this has got to be a thing where we all start coming back to the middle. Uh, if we keep dividing farther right and left, we, we got to quit letting the media, for one thing, tell us how to think or what to think. We need to start learning how to think. And that's the only way we're going to make this country a better place for everybody, including immigrants. Because, I mean, somewhere down the line, most of us are from and somebody that's immigrated here and created a, a life here and families and then it's expanded from there. I mean, if, you, if anybody looks up their lineage, I'm sure somewhere down the line, uh, I would I would almost probably say 90% of everybody that lives here now has come from overseas. And even the, I mean, the, even the original people here from the days of, let's say, slavery, that uh, we've all immigrated to the United States before it was the United States. It was just another landmass across the ocean. So, yes, we are a nation of immigrants. But at the same time, if we're not going to mold and, you know, melt in this melting pot, they call it, if we're not all going to melt into the same goals, we all need to look towards the same goals, which, in my opinion, was founded with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States of America. Those basic principles should be our guideline. Just as if you're a Christian and believe in the Bible, it's a it's a guideline of things we should be following to get a better outcome. So with that, I just say, try and think of things that can help you better prepare for the hardships that are going to come. Now, I don't... I don't know if this means recession like 1920, but if the economy over this last quarter shrunk 1.4%, I think is what I read somewhere, uh, if that happens again, now under the technical guidelines, that is considered a recession. So if that happens this next quarter when it's done and there's another you know, minus negative growth, which that's that's another funny thing. It's like so this whole time that Joe Biden's been in office, you know, we've had all these lockdowns. Uh, they keep claiming that yeah, we're creating all these jobs. Well, maybe these are just jobs that people are going back to work because they were told they had to stay home. That's a that's one thing that irks me the worst is when any any side of the political aisle says we've created these jobs. You haven't created crap in your whole lifetime, most of these people. Some of them have. Some of them have actually had successful businesses in their private life. Uh, but most of these people have just been politicians most of their life, like Joe Biden. But it irks me no matter who it is. If it was Donald Trump, if it's Joe Biden, if it's whoever, government doesn't create jobs. It depends on whether or not they have good policy or bad policy that helps businesses to create the jobs. 
if it, if they're going to create policies that makes it harder for businesses to create working places for people, then they're not going to they're not going to hire people. If government is creating jobs, that means they are expanding and hiring people into the federal workforce. That's the government creating jobs. So like I say, I'm just trying to inform people what's going on in this world with the best, most reliable sources I can come up with to get us all to come towards the middle, towards the best outcome for everyone. All nationalities, all colors, all creeds, all religions, whatever it may be, that's what America is about. But we got to be accountable for what happens from here on out. So with that, I give you my best regards to, hopefully this all turns out good for all of us. Uh, but there is going to be hard times ahead just to repair the best we can. And with that, this is me signing out for the Nielsen Show until next week. I hope you'll all come back again, and uh, hopefully we'll have something good for you to hear <laughs> instead of just the bearer of bad news. So signing out here on the Nielsen Show till next time. Thank you.